okay, few of you? All right. Uh, the rest of you, you'll try it again next week. Uh, no, uh, hopefully your husband wasn't a, a Nimrod this week. That's what we're shooting for. Uh, but no, we talked about Nimrod being a rebel. We talked about him being uh, sort of the father of, of rebellion and what this is going to look like, especially for uh, chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. But ultimately, and a greater theme and a much broader scope uh, of looking at uh, the mystery religion that we'll get into in just a moment. Now, tonight, I want to preface before we get too deep to just sort of remind us that tonight we're going to sort of go into the depth and then come back out. Uh, we're going to sort of jump in, splash in with a cannonball, and then make a beeline for the ladder, get out of it quick. And then we're going to get back into it um, come the next week or so in chapter 11. Because um, I don't want to get too bogged down in chapter 10. I want to spend some time while we're specifically looking at the Tower of Babel there in chapter 11. And we're going to see uh, the development of it a little bit here in chapter 10 with Nimrod. But as well, I want us to, to look at some of the themes and we'll look in the greater detail of it in chapter 11 about what this mystery religion looks like. And we're going to trace it specifically from the, the people of Babel, uh, the Tower of Babel in that time. And we're going to trace what this looks like all throughout history and, and modern day. Uh, we'll look a little bit at it tonight, just a hair. Uh, but tonight I want to read for us verse uh, chapter 10. Let's read verse number 8. Uh, through 12. Uh, it says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher and built at Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kala and Resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. So here what we find is that this man Nimrod is not merely some man who is good at hunting deer or buffalo or elk or nothing like that. The idea is that he is a hunter, a warrior of, of men. He is strong. He is cunning. And what we talked a little bit last week, just in brief, is that he is a, acting as a picture, a type of what the Antichrist will be one day. Now, you and I, as we've said a million times, studying through First Thessalonians Sunday School, is this, that we are not looking for an Antichrist, but we are looking for Christ to come first people. That's our promise. That's our hope. That's our blessed assurance. Our blessed assurance is not in a, a seven-year tribulation and being here for it, let alone dealing or having to, to deal with the Antichrist, okay, and his rule. We're going to be with the Lord. Uh, that is our plan. That is our assurance. Now, tonight, as we look at Nimrod, though, we've already dealt with a little bit about um, his ability, his strength, uh, and we talked about this idea that what else came out off of the ark besides animals and people? Well, we talked about sin came off the ark, right? Matter of fact, last week I was so thrilled and still am just uh, as elated this week that when I asked that last week, several said, sin, sin. It sounded like an episode of The Price is Right uh, out there. Everyone was trying to get it. Uh, and I was so excited because it shows that we're all learning about what God has done and ultimately how sin still stayed on the boat, got off the boat, and has impacted the society. We find that here, the sexual issues and the violence that plagued the world in Genesis chapter 6 of where God said enough is enough are still here. Matter of fact, we see them in full force even today, but yet we have to understand things are going to wax worse and worse is what the Bible tells us. And so this idea that somehow you and I are going to make things uh, so good and so better and see these uh, worldwide waves of revival and then Jesus will come back is contrary to the Bible. The Bible specifically says, not that there won't be revivals, but it does not talk about a revival of the world. Rather, if there is a revival of the world, it will be of uh, what we're seeing today, which is a, there is a revival, by the way, worldwide taking place right now. 
But it is not a revival of good things. It is a revival of the Babylonian mystery religion. It is coming out in full force right now. There is a huge return to mysticism, to paganism and the culture behind it. Uh, many of the religions of the Druids, the, the Celtic people, uh, the um, Scandinavian folks, going back to the way that the Vikings believe, much of that is becoming popular again. As a matter of fact, there's whole, and believe it or not, this sounds crazy, right? And this means nothing to you, but there's whole sub-genres of music now that is going back to some of those, uh, some of those uh, pagan uh, artists that are doing with uh, like the Scandinavian culture and the Viking culture. Uh, they're naming themselves after uh, 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 go uh, the gods and goddesses that they worshipped, as well as dressing up. Uh, and much of the way that they did, they play the music that they played during war games and, and, and all this stuff. We see that there's a popularization of pagan culture. Why? It's because we live in a pagan culture. It's because we live in a, a world of darkness, and darkness likes darkness, right? Matter of fact, the Bible says in John chapter 3 that the darkness actually hates the light. So right now what we're watching happen, it seems, we're watching the darkness seem to grow and the darkness seem to get darker. Now, this is what the Bible says was going to take place, but Nimrod seems to be a sort of seed for what we're seeing today. He seems to be sort of the seed of what all of this will come to pass to, to be. Now, Nimrod's conquest and legacy will ultimately culminate with the destruction of spiritual Babylon. Notice the difference here. We have what is called a literal and a physical Babylon, which is going to be there, the city of Babel, the, the, even the kingdom of Babel, and uh, the Tower of Babel, which we'll look at. When you and I think of Tower of Babel, we think of, either one of two things, either a tower that looks like um, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? Or we think of like skyscraper looking thing, right? That's what we're going to look at, right? When we look into chapter 11, we're going to be talking about what was probably more than likely a, a, a pyramid-like structure. Uh, matter of fact, we find the vast majority of the world, you go pretty much anywhere in the world today, uh, and you know what you'll find? You will find pyramids everywhere. Why is that? Because pyramids are going to be a part of this mystery religion. They are a part of the culture, they are a part of the worship, and the pagan and idolatrous ways of man. Now, Nimrod, ultimately we find that there is not just the physical Babylon, but there is the spiritual Babylon. This is the underside or the underbelly of it. This is what makes up the physical Babylon. These are spiritual, wicked, and pagan people, and ultimately what is called the spiritual great harlot there in Revelation 17 through 19, uh, which we'll deal with uh, at another time. Now, as we get into this Babylonian mystery religion tonight, as we look at Nimrod here, and I know you're looking, you're going, well, we just see that he's a mighty hunter. Well, we have to understand that this is the uh, beginnings of such and that this stems from Nimrod himself. He is the founder of Babel. He is the ruler of Babel. He rules with an iron fist. He rules to unify all people under his power, under his authority. Who does that sound like? That sounds like an antichrist, doesn't it? Right? This is a picture, any type. What we're going to find is that ultimately the kingdom of Babel operated much how we're going to see the end times play out. And that is a desire for a unification of religion or spiritual uh, things and as well as a globalization and a unification under that global system where there will be a system with a ruler who will have all the answers. Sometimes we forget 
that there's going to be great war before there becomes this peace treaty with Israel. The Antichrist steps on the scene and says, hey, guys, I've got the answers. Remember, the Antichrist is going to have such. He's going to say, I've got the answers. He's going to say, I can give world peace. I can provide for you the sustenance that is needed when everything else, your crops are failing. Here you go. Look what I can produce for you. I can take care of you. What we find is that ultimately it's giving a power to one man. Now, Nimrod acts as such. And so all folks are looking to Nimrod for the answers. Now, I want to give a little bit about this mystery religion. And we have to understand, first of all, that it is a mystery to a degree, yet it has revealed itself in several ways that we'll focus in more so once we get into chapter 11. We'll get more in the details of it. We'll follow the pattern throughout its history and some of the things that make it up. Now, we'll look at a little bit of it tonight, but Phillips writes... Uh, about Nimrod. His wife's name is not given in Scripture, but from secular sources we gather that she was the infamous Semiramis, the woman who first introduced idolatry on the earth and who made Babylon the eternal home of the mysteries. The vast system of pagan religion, which thereafter swiftly inundated the globe, stemmed from Babylon. Now later on in the Old Testament, we're going to see another lady named Jezebel who's going to be one who uh, introduces much uh, spiritual Uh, wickedness, idolatry, and even plays and causes God's people to play the harlot. Uh, And now Babylon here, and what is seen, and and we'll deal with a little bit later with some Semiramis and and look at some perhaps uh, some some things uh, historically of what it seems to have taken place, and we're going to trace some things through. But nevertheless, what is key to understand is this. As we look at the depths of Babylon, when you look at Babel or Babylon, when you look, you will find deeper into it. You will find Nimrod there at the core, at the very base of building, because there is no Babel without Nimrod. Nimrod is the creator, the founder of this, which tells us a whole lot more about Nimrod than it does Babel itself. It shows that its creator, its founder, was one whose character was not merely flawed or dealing with sin or battling sin. It was one who was wicked down to his very nature. His very nature was that of a rebel in his very name. He was against God's way, against God's order. We have to remember that all these nations that are described here in chapter 10 are going to be dispersed after chapter 11. And the reason why they're going to be dispersed is because instead of obeying God's command to go out to the whole world and populate the whole earth, what do they do? They gather up. Who are they gathering up under, though? This man named Nimrod. Now, ultimately, Babel itself will be the foundation for the spiritual corruption and rebellion in the world. It's where all spiritual confusion and all spiritual idolatry will be gathered together under the banner of Babel and and the land of Shinar, and specifically under the banner of the man named Nimrod, the ultimate rebel. He was not merely a rebel against God physically, where he sought power physically and politically over people, but that of spiritual. Uh, The issue today that we face, and we, we we sometimes see cases of this, But there is an abuse of power in our world today, wouldn't you agree? Uh, From a whole wide range of things. But we have to understand that at the very beginning, that much of the issue of of power and an abuse of it is spiritually. Spiritual abuse. We find that Nimrod was one such perpetrator, and he would commit such, and we find that ultimately everyone that falls under and and practices under a a mystery religion that, that we're dealing with here would, first of all, not say that they're living or worshiping in a Babylonian mystery religion. But why would you say that? No, they believe that they're very sincere in their faith. They believe that they're very doing good things, nice things. 
we're going to find that ultimately that it was going to be a counterfeit. That's going to be the key for understanding what Babylonian mystery religion is. It's a counterfeit. It looks like the real thing, but it's not. Right? All right, let me, uh, let me give you an example. Y'all ever heard of, y'all ever heard of uh, Pop-Tarts before? All right, everybody like Pop-Tarts? A few of you, I don't mind Pop-Tarts. Pop-Tarts ain't that bad, all right? If you act too good for Pop-Tarts, you've got to get you one, all right? Pop-Tarts are real, de- and you know, you know how it's Pop-Tart? Because it says on it, Pop-Tart. That's how you know. But they got these other things that came in I have found at the Dollar Tree. You know what they're called? You know what they're called? That's right. That's why she's laughing. Toast them pop-ups. Toast them pop-ups. Toast them pop-ups. Pop-tarts. I'll repeat one more time for effect. Pop-tarts. Toast them pop-ups. Which one's the real thing? Well, the pop-tart. Now, I'm cheap, and I'll get toast them pop-ups. I ain't too good for that. Those things are good. They're just, but they're not quite the same, are they? Right? They think about this. You, we see it all the time. You can go down the cereal aisle, especially over here at Food Line, right? Tonight, leave church, go over to Food Line, take you a little field trip. You ain't got to buy nothing if you don't want to. That's fine. You just go in. I want you to march down the, down the cereal aisle. And you know what you're going to see? You're going to see a brand of cereal. And then right next to it, you're going to see the off-brand. And it's going to be a way-off name, isn't it? Now, it's going to look the same. Probably going to taste kind of similar. But it's not the same. Now, that sounds silly to talk about cereal and things, and it is, but I want us to understand this. The way that mystery religion works is it goes, this is godliness. Looks that way on the outside, but on the inside, it is hollow as can be. It is pagan and idolatrous and even blasphemous and a denial of, of the reality of who God actually is and what God actually expects and requires. This is why come next week, we'll trace it further, and we're going to see that what we find in much of modern-day Christianity today is not real Christianity. Matter of fact, it's not even close. It's toast and pop-ups religion, right? <laughs> it's not the real deal. It is fake. It's phony. But it looks real. It feels, and that's going to be the focus, emotions. It's going to be emotionally driven. It's going to be unifying. It's going to be one that releases your inner person and all this inner light that is within you. I want you to know you have no inner light within you. Not one of us. We are dark and sinful. That's what the Bible tells us. We've got to see, though, that what the Antichrist will do, what Nimrod did, and what sin has always done is presents a counterfeit to what God says is right. It goes, oh, God says that's right. Well, did God really say haven't you seen this? Doesn't this look good, right? We go, and you and I, we say, all right, we, we must worship the Lord. But what this counterfeit mystery religion will do, it goes, let's melt down our earrings and let's make a golden calf. It, it will say, hey, we are, you're right, we are meant to worship. And so let's worship the God uh, called Jehovah, the God of Israel, but let's also get our bases covered and let's throw our babies in the fire of Molech just to make sure that's mystery religion. That's paganism. That's idolatry. That's the kingdom of Nimrod. Now, the kingdom of Nimrod ultimately is one of a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of rebellion, a kingdom of unbelief. Now, more will be said about the system of belief and practice as we study the Tower of Babel there in Genesis 11, and we'll pick up on a lot more of this. But what is clearly seen is that Nimrod 
and his descendants would be a pagan people who seek the demise of the promised seed of the, of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. Let's remember back the very seed of the Gospel, the very seed of what we've been studying, the very seed, the promised seed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now you can look and trace that enmity all the way through the Scripture. You can find the uh, counterfeit Christians, if you will, or the counterfeit folks uh, who are not really following the Lord. Uh, rather, what we would find is that there are those who operate by the flesh. They operate uh, in a sense of religion even, or perhaps even moralism, and sometimes outright, outright uh, you know, paganism and, and idolatry and wickedness. But that's that group. They are at enmity with the seed of the woman. They are ultimately, ultimately at enmity with God. Then there's another group that we've seen traced, and you can see it traced in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 of Genesis. And then you have the other side, which is that of the seed of faith. These are those not who have inherited salvation, but rather who have had salvation imputed to their account by grace through faith. They have trusted the Lord. They have, as the Bible has put it thus far in the first ten chapters, they have called upon the name of the Lord, meaning it is trusting in the God of covenant, trusting in the God of deliverance, trusting in the God who has revealed Himself to be the Creator, the Savior, and the One who has promised the promised seed to the people. So there is this division amongst both sides, all right? And, and you've got this absolutely traced all throughout, and we find it today. The Bible puts it other ways as well. Lost and saved. Uh, uh, the ones who are spiritually blind and the ones who can spiritually see. Uh, we have those who are called uh, the goats and the sheep. We find that there is this constant division, this wedge between folks that, that leads to enmity uh, the one side at enmity with God and God's people, and the other one, we are now at odds that we've been saved with the world and the world system because the world system also is the same system that Nimrod is establishing. The world system seeks to unify the world at all costs. You ever notice that every time you go and you, you listen to any sort of pageant, uh, you know, Miss Universe or Miss America, where they always say, right, they want world peace. Well, that sounds nice. But if you and I, it, we have to understand this, dear Christian, if we're praying for world peace, you know what you're ultimately praying for? For Christ to return. Now, when Christ returns, there's going to be great war. There's going to be great tribulation that will come against the world. Nevertheless, though, it is ultimately, peace is only found in Christ because He is the Prince of Peace. But ultimately, He is the one that brings about peace into the world when He rules and reigns in the millennial kingdom. Now that day is coming. Nevertheless, before that day, we have a whole lot of Nimrods who will rise up, and especially a particular Nimrod, who will be the Antichrist, who will bring about this idea of worship of self, will be promoted throughout the world, a unification and a globalization of the world. And ultimately the idea of Nimrod, and ultimately the idea of idolatry at its very root is this. It is a worship of self. It is my will and a rejection of God's. It is my works and rejection of God's work. It is my worth, and God means nothing, right? I am my own God is the idea. It is about my wants, my wishes. It is about my world. Now, here's what we find is that the Bible is, tells us, uh, as I believe it's Paul writing to Timothy, where he talks about how they're going to become lovers of self. That's a world that we're living in. Now, notice this. They were dealing with it there in the first century, as, as Paul writes it. But they were also dealing with it here. 
And we're certainly dealing with it in our day, but here's the issue that we've got to understand is that we're not just dealing with it where lost people love themselves more than anything, but saved folks love themselves more than anything. And that ought not be so. There must be a distinguishing difference between those who practice this false religion, this counterfeit religion, and those who walk in the way of life. Those who walk the narrow way and the broad way. Now, uh, we'll deal more with Nimrod and this culture and this pagan society of which he will uh, create as we get into chapter 11. But I want us to begin just to understand and to see these patterns and to see some of these things and my prayer is that as we study this, this counterfeit religion all the more, that our eyes will be opened to discern the times that we're in, but as well to discern much of what calls itself Christian today. Now, I believe that we've got to be careful here because we can go to one extreme or the other. We can go to one extreme and we can defend anything that claims to be Christian because it has the right few fundamental things. We go, well, see, it looks right. It sounds right. It's not that bad. We must not go to the other extreme that rejects everything that does not look like just what I am, right? We've got to be careful of those extremes. What we find is that the Bible here shows us clearly what, uh, what we are to believe, what we are to practice, how we are to live our life, but as well shows us what a counterfeit religion looks like. And ultimately, we understand this. There is no other way to know the Lord outside of the Word of God, outside of by grace through faith. What counterfeit religion ultimately will teach is that there are many ways to God, there are many ways to peace, there are many ways to heaven, or, or some version of such, and that ultimately you hold your own destiny, you hold your own keys to your own kingdom, and you yourself, you are your own compass. The Bible says the exact polar opposite. Now, with this, as we work our way through the more of this lineage, we see Nimrod, we see these kingdoms pop up. We get into verse 13. It says, And Mizraim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehabim, and Naphtahim, and Pathrusim, and Kalsahim, out of whom the Philistim, and Kaphtorim. And Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Here's what we're watching take place in chapter 10. We're watching the table of nations take place, the development of nations, not races, but nations. Now, before here, and it's not in the notes tonight, but it's just something for us to, to think about. Globalization is this idea for Nimrod, right? Let's unify everyone. We've got one, one group of people, one language, one religion, one uh, political system, one ideology, one... It's a one. It's his gathering. Now that sounds nice, right? Unity sounds good. But not all unity is good, right? That's the thing. It's a false unity because it's not truly united. Now what we're going to find then is with all these folks though, what God is showing us is that He Himself has promoted and determined that there are to be nations and people and governing bodies. And so this is why in today's world, 
we do have a separation of church and state, and we have a separation of, of countries and nationalities, and we have a separation of borders within our nations and armies to protect said borders and things of that nature. So we've got to understand that we're living in a world that right now, the vast majority of people that are 30 years and younger are for a absolute deconstruction of borders or nationalism of any kind. Right now, the average person in the world, or I would say specifically, more than likely the average young person today would look at us and what we believe tonight, and you know what you would be called tonight? Besides bigot, fool, crazy, all that stuff, is you would be lumped into what is now called the category of Christian nationalism. How many of you have heard of Christian nationalism? A couple of you. Here's what they say today. They say that anyone that believes like us, right, is, gets lumped under what is called Christian nationalism, and they say that it is right-wing, extremist, uh, extreme fundamental of faith, right? All of these things. Now, you go, well, that, that sounds somewhat familiar, but the idea is that it has been so villainized that to be conservative, to be Christian specifically, and to hold according to the Bible as it is actually written, and not as we want it to say, right, or to say what we want it to say, but that we take it as it is written, right, the whole thing, we are now lumped into this, and so now what is viewed for those that are Christian nationalists is that they only love America, and only love Americans, only love white people, right, that's the extremist that it's gone, and hate anyone and everything that is not. Now, this is a problem. Why? Because God has said that nations are not a bad thing, Matter of fact, he set up what government should look like for those nations, and ultimately every nation, every nation's governmental leaders are ultimately under the authority of God. They should be holding uh, the Word of God higher than their own thoughts, their own opinions, even their own constitution. It should be God's Word, God's rule. Nevertheless, what we have found is that there has been such a, a uh, such sin in our world that is permeated from the top to the bottom and the bottom back to the top is that now we live in a world that wants to totally throw away all borders, to throw away nationalities, to throw away anything that does not fit the box of unification and globalization. Why is that? Is it because the world has lost their mind? Yes and no. I would say it's because you look back at someone like a Nimrod and we find that this is a picture of what is going to be. We're just living in the days today. And by the way, it's a privilege to live in these days. God entrusted you and I with these days that we live in. We must never forget that. He entrusted us for these days. It is a privilege to be able to watch these things come to pass. Why? Because it ought to strengthen our belief that this Bible is God's Word. It ought to strengthen our hope that Christ is returning. It ought to strengthen our motivation to preach the Word. Now, the descendants here that we just read about in verse 15 to 20, and all their nations and all the folks, and many of them we're going to see later on as God brings His people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. We're going to see many of these names mentioned once more. But what we find is that the descendants of Canaan, the fourth son of Ham, are names more familiar in later Bible geography and history. The Sidonians of Lebanon descended from Canaan along with the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and other lesser-known people such as the Archites, the Sinites, and the Arvidites, and the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Now, many of these folks would come into uh, some, some extinction, some morphing and in, in, intermarriage, uh, but many of these are going to be mentioned and seen later on 
uh, with the people of Israel. And specifically, many of them are going to be against, specifically, against God's people. Now, verse 19 and 20. End the giving of the lineage of the Hamites, showing the region that Canaan will occupy until Israel is given the land by the deliverance of God. Ultimately, what is God doing? God is doing two things. One, He is preparing to use these pagan people for His own good. But He is as well preparing the, the, His own people for their good and for His glory. That He might uh, dispense His grace to them by faith and display His glory through them. That is what God has always desired through His people. That's what He still does today through His people. Now, God will use these evil nations even for the good, but especially for the good of His people. Now, these descendants too will be pagan and rebellious people in their idolatrous and immoral way of life. We see it from top to bottom. And ultimately, as you get into this, and we're going to find later on when you get into Exodus and things, as they're entering into the promised land, uh, especially when you look at the Deuteronomy and things, God is going to be giving or re-giving the law. And time and time again, He's going to say, do not marry the Canaanites. Why? Is it because He says, you and the color of your skin is better than the color of their skin, or, or your wealth and where you come from is better than where they come from? No, the issue is a heart issue. The people themselves were sinful and idolatrous. Their, their focus, their basis of a society was also religious like the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish society was going to be built on religion, but specifically what? The trust and the God of the covenant as the, co- as the people of the covenant is what they would be called. But the other group, this pagan world, this Broadway world, this fleshly world, this folks who follow the way of Nimrod and, and go through that lineage, if you will, these folks, their society is based off religion too. But it is a counterfeit religion. It is a uh, religion with many gods and goddesses, a religion full of idolatry, which where you find idolatry, you will find immorality. The two go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, idolatry is the cause of immorality. Immorality just leads to more idolatry, leads to more self-worship, leads to more self-satisfaction. This is why God is going to warn them. Be careful. Why? Because He doesn't want that getting in to Israel. What would happen throughout Israel's history? It would happen time and time again. What happens to godly folks all the time? is that as we are surrounded by sin, we become comfortable with sin, and then we start inviting sin, and we start playing with sin, and now sin is not just our next-door neighbor, but sin lives in our own home. It becomes a quick issue, and it is a terrible issue. It grows, and it festers, and it causes great issues of life. Now, here's what we have to understand, both about the Jewish people that God is raising up, the people of faith, and these pagan Gentile folks. Both of them are building their lives very similarly. Faith-based, religious-based. And by the way, every society today is religious-based. Every society, every person is religious-based and spiritually-based. Now, this is the issue. We have what the Bible tells us about that, but then we have the counterfeit and what, what the counterfeit misreligion will tell us about that. And, and so we're, we're going to get more into that, but we find that the, the two, every person is a spiritual being. We must find, though, we are not to go and be spiritual off on our own. Matter of fact, there's a whole lot of spiritual people who are lost. We need to trust the Lord alone. And ultimately, God here shows us what this is to look like. Now, we have to understand about these Canaanites and what God is doing with raising up these other people is that for both of them, 
as their entire society goes, as their way of life, that the way one believes is the way one behaves. Right? The reason why Nimrod acts the way he does is because of his belief, his idolatry. The reason why the Canaanites are going to live the way that they do is because of what they believe. Now, the reason why the Jewish people are to go into, the reason why that they will live the way they live is because of what they believe. Good and bad. So, the reason why we sin is our sin goes back to a problem of belief. You could argue unbelief, but even unbelief is a belief. Unbelief is a belief that what God has said is not really true. Belief is trusting that what God said is true. And so when we sin, ultimately what we're doing is that we are not believing God, not believing His Word, not believing His promises, not believing the principles of Scripture. Ultimately, it is a belief issue. So every issue of life is a matter of faith. Every person in this world has faith. Even the ones that say that they are faithless. They have an awful lot of faith in order to be faithless or to proclaim that they're faithless. We find everyone is full of faith. But putting your faith in the wrong thing leads to this way of following the Nimrod, following the way of the Babylonian culture and the way of the idolatrous and pagan society. But as the chapter continues and ends, it ends for me, I believe, if we understand this, on a good note. Now you say, how could we just look at another list of long names that we can't understand and call that a good note? Well, because these names are leading to Christ. These names are leading to Abram and Isaac and Jacob and all the way down through the lineage of the promised seed. Now picking up here in verse number 21, unto Shem also the father of all children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were the children born, the children of Shem and Alam and Asher and Arphaxad and Lud and Aram, and the children of Aram, Uz, and Hul, and Gether, and Mash, and Arphaxad begat Salah, and Salah begat Eber, and Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in the days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan, and Joktan begat Almadad, and Sheleph, and uh, Hazaramaveth, and Jerah, and Hodoram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimelel, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling was from Misha unto, uh, as thou goest, unto Sephar, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, and their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, and the nations. By these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. This is leaving on a good note, because we see sons of Shem. Kinder writes, The ground has been cleared for the family of peoples, which will be the Old Testament's main concern. And of these, Eber, uh, which the apparent root of the name Hebrew, uh, you can see uh, later on we'll, we'll deal with that as we get into it. But it is singled out at once uh, here in verse 21. Uh, but uh, uh, to this end, the list quickly then narrows to the line of Arpachshad, uh, and so to Eber. Uh, but the more significant branch of this family, that of Peleg, is kept in reserve for the fuller treatment of chapter 11, verse 10, while that of Joktan, uh, the father of many of the Arab races, uh, people, uh, is first disposed of according to as the standard practice of the book. So God gives a little bit of folks. He kind of puts them on the back burner and then talks more in specific about who? The people of the lineage of faith. So the focus is now going from this broad range of these pagan worlds that are going to surround who? Now the inward focus, the smaller focus, the microscopic focus of God's people, the people of Shem, the people of faith. Now these people will be the focal point of God's redemptive plan by way of the Hebrew people, God's chosen nation, Israel. 
It is God who says later on throughout the Old Testament that He created Israel, that He called Israel, that He formed Israel, that He made them like they were His own child, uh, and all of these things. That is He who brought them into existence, is He who has sustained their existence. And if God did not have covenant with Israel, do you think that Israel would be in existence today? No. All throughout their whole history, these pagan people of chapter 10, the, the folks of Ham and Japheth, uh, but especially that of Ham, have sought the destruction of Israel. And so what we find is that Israel's pre, uh, being preserved as it is today is a testimony of God's grace, God's character, and God's covenant with these people. Now more detail will be given to the lineage by showing its continuation to Abram, whom God will join an everlasting covenant with to create a people for himself to display his glory and grace. What's going to happen is, Chapter 11 is normally viewed as just the Tower of Babel. But we have to remember that's only the first nine verses. After that, it goes back to the descendants of who? That of Shem. To end in chapter 11 with, as it says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of, nati- of his nativity in the Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, and the father Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, she had no child, and Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, uh, Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from them, from Ur the Chaldees, to go into the land of Canaan, and they came unto Haran, and dwelt there, and in the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said unto Abram, that's what we're getting to. That's the focal point of what God is directing us to now. He has shown us the pagan, sinful societies and cultures, and now He's going, but now here's yet still my redemptive plan. Here's still the focus of faith and covenant promises. Uh, Now the chapter wraps up here with the details of lineage of the nations, the tribes, the tongues of those who would be divided up after the fall of Babel. There's going to be this great dispersion throughout all the world ultimately to get to the people that you and I are today. Uh, Furthermore, we see that this dispersion of people groups will not create different races of people, but rather different nations and ethnic groups through a forced migration due to sinful rebellion. And as well, what we're going to see is that the reason why folks throughout the world look the way they do is because as you trace DNA and genetic makeup, and as we talked about a few weeks back, is that scientists have gone back and looked and traced and they did a people group test from folks all around the world, and they said that you can trace back to three kinds or three groups of people. Where do you find that? Pretty easy. Shem, Ham, Japheth, right? Genealogically, it makes the most sense. The Bible speaks clearly, not merely just through the words on this page here in the Bible, but as well throughout the scientific discovery that proves the Bible to be truer and truer every single day. Furthermore, what we find is that what is most notable throughout all of this is that God continues His redemptive plan of history without ever being thwarted, set back, or unnerved by the work of evil against Him. God's plan will providentially be carried out by the work of His grace through His people of faith. Here's what God's providence is. God's providence is this. It is God's power operating through God's people to accomplish God's plan. That's what the providence of God is. God's providence is God's power operating through God's people to accomplish God's plan. 
We find this from the very beginning to the very end of all humanity. God's providence is at work. The Lord knows. The Lord cares. The Lord is at work in every detail, not merely of human history, but every detail of your life. Now this brings the believer hope tonight. Because as we see that God knows every single soul that is written here in chapter 10, but He knows much more. He knows their hearts. He knows their motivation. He knows their end and their beginning long before they were ever even created and formed and fashioned by His hand. And what you and I find is this. God cares deeply about us, His redeemed people. God will never leave them. He will never forsake them. Lo, He is with us always. Right? We find that God cares providentially to operate through us. God desires to use you, dear believer, ultimately to accomplish His plan. What is the plan of God? The plan of God would be what we would probably call the will of God. And everyone wants to know what the will of God is for their life, don't we? God's will for our life is to see His grace revealed, to respond by faith. It is to see and to proclaim Christ. It is to know Christ and to make Him known. It is to live to His glory and to His honor and to His praise. It is to live so that all others would see and hear the name of Christ and would want to know Him as we do. So that we would be able to spread forth the blessing and the benefit of being in relationship with the Lord our God who saved people through the flood, after the flood, and continues to save even when such sin prevails. We find that God is ever at work. So tonight, as we bring chapter 10 to a close, I want us to remind us as well of this and what we began with as we began this section, and that is this. Let's not skip genealogy chapters. Rather, let's see as you work your way through the Bible that every name matters and that ultimately what God is doing is working out His providence. What's His providence? To work and to display His power through His people, by His power going through His people to accomplish His plan. That should make our hearts rejoice tonight. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this night. We're grateful that You would allow us to study Your Word, to study this passage, to see uh, all these things that You have given to us. Lord, help us to have understanding. Help us to trust You by faith. Uh, Help us to receive and to respond to Your Word. We pray that tonight that we would be a people of faith, that we would trust You, that we would live by faith, that we would be an example of faith, that we would encourage others and and implore others even uh, to come to faith in Christ, that we would go throughout this world and that we would see the great need of the nations uh, that that are in desperate need to hear the Gospel. Lord, may we give to missions. May we be ourselves missionaries in our daily life as we go throughout the world, as we go throughout our day, even into our homes and our families and our friends, and that we would proclaim the truth of Your Word. Lord, we love You. We thank You for meeting with us. Watch over us and God direct us until we meet again. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, don't forget.